0: You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. good morning church, if you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Genesis chapter three. Guess my name is Cody, I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. Uh, and excited to be back this week. Thank you uh, all so much for the calls and the texts and the, uh, the the food that you brought to our house over the past couple weeks uh, dealing with COVID. Thank you so much Ashley and the boys are still at home making sure they're recovered but they miss you and we're thankful uh, for you and glad to continue here in our series uh, in Genesis which we titled God's Story of Creation uh, to Restoration. If you are a guest today we normally walk through books of the Bible together because we want to know what God has to say. Now We call this preaching because we believe the Bible has something to say. And so we submit our lives to it. And if you're not a follower of Jesus today, we hope that this is a safe place for you to see uh, what God says and to see who God's people are and to see how we're called to respond to Him. And so if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those black hardcover Bibles in front of you and turn to page 2 and follow along with us. Lee just read verses 1 through 7. We're going to be in the whole chapter this morning. Can you trust God? Can you trust God? You've probably heard, you may have even said things like, trust is easily broken, but hard to restore. Can you trust God? Is God holding something back from us. We look around the world and something's just not quite right. So should we trust ourselves instead of God? Is he hiding something from us? What we see here in this chapter is no. We should not trust ourselves. And we can trust God. And if we look out in the world, if we think about our own lives and our own experiences and we see the news, if we just read in Genesis 1 and 2 that all things were created good, what happened? What is wrong? Because when I look at the world and when I, when I spend two weeks with COVID and when I see war across the, the, the world and I see people struggling, when I see uh, the poor and I see the sick and I see governments toppled and I see people wondering, where is God in all of this? Why is it this way? Why is there pain and suffering, tensions and death? Genesis 3 tells us why these things exist. We only get to experience the good of creation for two chapters in the Bible. Two chapters. That's all it took for us to change the course of human history. And so when we look here in this chapter, here's what we're going to see. Adam and Eve disobey God's command and bring sin into God's good creation, and so God judges them. Now, if you're a disciple this morning, if you call the name of Jesus, what do you need to know? Rebellious sin fully separates us from God, but in His compassion, we find gracious provision. You, you might ask the question, why are we so infatuated with sin? Think about it this way. Why do some people like danger more than others? I'm not particularly a risk taker. My boss calls me careful Cody, and there's reasons for that, but I'm not particularly a risk taker. So I don't like danger, but but some of you do. Some of us like to play around with it, like to make it palpable, but we even desire the danger of it. But danger, much like sin, is something that we try to make easier on us. We name foods after it. Sinfully delicious foods. We name cities after it. Sin city. Rather than sensing the danger of sin, we are attracted to it. Why? Because we have all been born into the line of Adam, and we all are sinners, which we're going to see here. And what happens, remember, the garden is a cosmic temple which God is supposed to be worshipped by Adam and Eve and their children. But we go from the purity of the garden, the purity of paradise, to the fracture of the fall in one moment. And as we go through this chapter, I want you to understand that God's word has been central. It's been at center stage throughout these first three chapters. Right, God's word creates everything in Genesis chapter 1. It is good, he calls it good, he judges it, he says it to be good. And then we get to chapter 2 and God forms Adam and makes Eve and he gives them a command to follow. God's word is at the center of this story and it's at the center of Genesis chapter 3. The question is, are we going to listen and obey God's word? You can imagine Israel who have now been brought out of Egypt and Moses is bringing them to the promised land and they're before Mount Sinai and God gives the Ten Commandments and the law. The question still remains, are we going to trust God and listen to His word? So hear this story in light of that. Are we going to trust God and His word? So I want to show you three principles from our story, a true story, that happened to Adam and Eve. So, principle number one. Sin starts with a temptation to mistrust God. Sin starts with the temptation to mistrust God. Look there at verse 1 again. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Now, I need to pause there, and as we start, it's important for us to think about this serpent, because this serpent is an ordinary serpent, We know him to be the devil, Satan, Lucifer. He is the one, whether he embodied him or whether he took over his uh, body or whether he was able some we don't know. We don't know exactly what's going on. But we do know that this is Satan. And I cannot explain everything about him. I cannot explain why he is there. I don't know. The Bible only gives us a little bit of information. But here's what we do know. He was one of the mightiest of angels, one of the most beautiful angels. He was magnificent. And in Isaiah 14 and and Ezekiel 28, we see that he wanted to be more than an angel. He wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to be God. I don't want to worship God anymore. I want to be worshipped myself. I want to be God. And maybe we see here The essence of sin. And so I'm going to say a phrase to you. Satan willed to sin. He willed to sin. He wanted to be more. He wanted more. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be worshipped. And so what Satan does is he takes one third of the angels with him and heaven had a rebellion on its hands. But that rebellion wouldn't last very long because God cast down Satan and his demons to the world. We don't know when that was. We don't have the answers to that. What we do know is God cast them down and those angels immediately become demons and they're wholly evil, wicked, and unrighteous. And now this serpent has entered God's good garden, his temple. Let's go back into the story. Moses describes the serpent as the most cunning. He's shrewd. He's he's wise. He knows what he's doing. And there's an ominous feeling to the, the text that we get. You see, the serpent knows where the traps are. Think about the hunter who has laid the traps down in the woods to catch the bears or the deer or the foxes. The hunter knows where those traps are. Satan knows exactly where he's going to lead Eve, he knows what he's doing. He's very powerful, and this shrewdness can be used for good or evil, but it's very powerful. And what we're going to see is that the word of God brought life and order into creation, but the word of the serpent will bring death and chaos. Look back down. He said to the woman, all right, first of all, I told you this was a different serpent. This is not kind of any kind of serpent that we know about, and it's probably a good reason that we hate snakes, Okay. So He says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Satan wants to question God. He wants to make muddy what's been clear. Right? The purpose was to engage Eve on the commandment. And now we're going to see why. Look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it. Or touch it, or you will die. Eve's response demonstrated that she does not fully understand or retain God's word. Here's what I mean. Number one, she minimized God's word. She let she left out freely eat. God was generous. You can eat from any of these trees except this one. So she minimizes God's generosity. And then she added, number two, she added to God's word, right? What what does she add? She says, we cannot touch it. Whether she was trying to think about this in her own mind to protect herself, she adds to God's word. But maybe the strongest thing that she does is she weakens God's word. What does she leave out? She leaves out this word, surely, that we see in Genesis chapter 2. God said, you will surely die. And so Yes, yeah, she says that you will die, but she misses the point. This will come to pass. When God's word is weakened, the, the appeal, the desire to sin grows stronger. And we do that today. It's easy to do that today with, with God's word. Right? We say things, well, that's not what he really means by that phrase. Well, that's only for the first century. Well, well that was only for this group of people. And we, we begin to weaken god 's word, and so, like like chopping down a tree, I, I grew up cutting uh, wood, we would burn wood for heat uh, it 's it's great heat, but I would rather not cut another tree in my life. Uh, I really would rather not, but we, we would we would go and we would cut down trees and we would we would chop them up, and we would haul them back to the house, and we would stack it, and for whatever reason, we had a whole barn full of wood that we kept going to get more wood because we had to have uh, Wood for heat. But anyways, we would go and we would chop down. We begin to chop down those trees. And what happens is once you chop the tree, you know, its integrity begins to to waver. And then that tree now can fall because you've been chopping at it. This is what Satan does to God's word. He's chopping at God's word. And now he will chop down Eve's trust in God's word. And now Satan's ready. He's ready for that tree to fall. Look at verse 4. No, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. This is an outright denial of God's word. Right? The question about the prohibition, the question about God's word has become a direct denial. And this is the lie that haunts us as humans What Satan says is, there are no consequences to your sin. None. No one's going to get hurt. No one's going to know. You can do this. You are fine. No one knows what you are doing. It's the lie that haunts us about our sin. Over and over and over again. But it's not true. What we see here is that sin brings death. And now, now that God has been questioned and Satan has denied his word, Satan goes right for God's integrity. Look at verse 5. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan not only questions his his commands, he questions God's integrity, his goodness, his generosity. He makes God out to be jealous. God knows when you eat that, you're going to be like him. And God doesn't want that. The irony irony is here, church, is that they are already like God. Genesis 1, 27. Let us make man in our own image, in our likeness. Adam and Eve are already like God. And Satan wants to, he wants to use his own sin now to bring Adam and Eve with him because he hates God's people. Now let's stop and think for just one second about what, Satan has done. In raising a question about God's command, Satan is now able to attack God's character with the promise of divinity. So what does Satan really attack? He attacks God's authority. Satan's lie is that authority is bad. That God doesn't have a reason for you not to eat that fruit. And when we look around our own society, it seems that everyone is suspicious of authority except their own authority. But God has authority for a reason. Why? Because he's creator, sustainer. He is the maker of heaven and earth, as the creed says. He is the one who has authority over all things. But, just think with me for just a moment. The command not to eat the tree is a little arbitrary, right? We don't really know what's bad about it. We don't, we don't, it's kind of weird, right? Now, if God would have said, don't murder each other, we'd have been like, hey, got that? All good. Not going to do that. But he says, don't eat the fruit of the tree. And we don't really know why. It's weird. It, It doesn't make as much sense. We're not really sure why God gave this command. Here's the thing. You can't obey God unless you trust Him. You can't obey God unless you trust Him. See, if it made more sense not to eat the fruit... You could have relied on your own understanding. We must trust the character of God in order to obey His commands. Are you only willing to obey God when you understand or agree? If so, maybe you you are your own God because you understand and you know and you think that's right too. Obedience before the fall requires trust. It requires trust that God is for you, even when you don't understand that God can be trusted. Like a father telling his child to do something, and that child asking why, Graham loves to ask me why a lot. When he asks me, I tell him right now, for this season, I tell him because I said so. And I know some of you probably experienced that phrase, in a a harmful way. That's That's not what I'm trying to do with my son. But what I am trying to tell him is, you don't have to know every reason for why I tell you to do something. Kids, look up at me. You don't have to know why mommy and daddy tell you what to do. You don't have to know. Because they have authority and they're going to tell you what to do. Now, what I don't mean is that when my son turns 12 and 14 and 16 that I cannot begin to explain that to him. But when my son runs into the road, and I say, no, come here, there's no time for me to explain why to get out of the road. The question is, does my son trust me when I tell him what to do? Do you trust God even when you don't understand? But here's the problem. For Eve, the work of temptation has been finished, and Eve is not even sure, is is God for me? Can I trust Him? Does God really love me? And look at verse 6 and what happens. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So all her senses were pleased. Food for physical. The beauty was emotional. The wisdom was spiritual. And really, uh, you see two of these words used in the Ten Commandments when it talks about covet. She desired this. So now that her... Trust in God has been taken away she looks at the fruit and then she took some of its fruit and ate it and she gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. If you're wondering where Adam is, he's sitting there watching Watching his wife talk to a serpent, which I would have to think is weird, but maybe it wasn't for them. But either way, once the serpent began to confront God's command, he should have done what he was called to do and kicked that serpent out of the garden. But he's passive, and he watches, and he takes. He goes along with it anyway. So here's the thing. Eve may have been tempted to sin. Adam willfully sins. Willfully sins. So what happens? Look at verse 7. The eyes of them, of both of them, were opened and they knew that they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. A little anticlimactic, don't you think? They know they're naked, but why does this make them like God? They know what shame and guilt are. They know the difference between good and evil. And so they sewed fig leaves together to to cover themselves. And ironically, what the Bible talks about humanity, it talks about humanity being blind spiritually. Yes, their eyes are open to good and evil, but they are blind to what God is able to do. And only the blindness from sin can be opened by God. So let's take just a moment. Let me define sin for you. Sin says, I will no longer obey I want to be my own authority. And what sin does is it misdirects and it malforms and it distorts God's good creation to begin to to look to itself. Relationships and what we use in creation now begin to be used in selfish ways and begin to be worshipped and begin to be distorted. So here's the thing. When it comes to sin, you will always choose what your heart wants the most in that moment. That's the reality. We will choose what we want the most in that moment. That's all it is. Do we want God more than we want our sin? And when sin grows up, church, let me be very clear. We're going to see it here in these next verses. When sin grows up, it brings death. And we fool ourselves into thinking that this little sin doesn't actually bring death. And church, let me also say, Adam is responsible here. The Bible talks about Adam being responsible for sin entering the world in Romans 5. It's his authority and his responsibility in the garden. And you see, we talk about, why are we this way? Because we were born in Adam. He is our federal head. We now get his sin. In Adam, all sinned. And so now, sin has entered into God's world. And so sin starts with mistrusting God, and that leads us into rebellion, but that's not the only thing. And sin brings consequences in conflict with God. That's our second principle. Sin brings consequences in conflict with God. Look there at verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden so the Lord God called out to the man and said to him where are you not that God didn't know and he said to him I heard you in the garden I was afraid because I was naked so I hid and God said who told you that you were naked did you eat from the tree that I told you that I commanded you not to eat from God knows what's happened God God is not unaware We already see the effects of sin. Adam, Adam now does something he's never done before. He runs from God. Sinners don't seek after God. Conflict is already visible here. And look what Adam says in verse 12. The woman you gave to be with me. She gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate. Adam is the first human that's recorded to speak to God. And what does he do? He avoids the question. He doesn't even tell God where he was. He avoids the question, and he shifts blame for the whole thing. Notice, church, that someone who is spiritually alive, they seek after God's forgiveness and call on his merciful character because that's not what Adam does. The response to our sin is not to hide, but to confess. You see, when God says, where are you, Adam? God is giving Adam an opportunity to confess his sin right then and there. Adam doesn't do it playing basketball in high school I I had a coach who used to say don't let one mistake turn into two and so this was really ingrained in me we were uh, playing uh, towards end of the season my sophomore year and uh, it was a really important game and I turn the ball over in the backcourt guy gets a layup but I foul him we were up two so now he ties the game and I foul him he gets to take the free throw to go up one point. He hits the free throw. They go up one point, we lose the game. And so what my coach meant was don't let one mistake, one turnover, and then a foul lead to to the second mistake. You see, what sin does is it compounds on us. We make one sin, and that sin leads to another sin, and that other sin leads to the other sin. And so they just begin to compound and grow. And it's exactly what happens here to Adam. He doesn't listen to God's command, and then he hides from him. He doesn't confess his sin. Instead of confessing sin before God, notice what he does. Adam throws Eve under the bus, for sure. But who does he ultimately throw under the bus? God. The woman you gave me. He shifts blame. And so God, being gracious, he moves on. Look at verse 13. The Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. God has all the information he needs. It's important for you to understand at this moment, we're going to see God be God. What do I mean by that? Because of sin, we're going to see a fuller picture of who God is. We're going to see his justice, and we're going to see his mercy. But God is going to be God in this moment. Look at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, right, God doesn't even ask the serpent. He doesn't even give him a chance to speak. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock, right? So a curse is a decree made by God against a person or a thing that only God can be, uh, only can be carried out by God, that no one else can do this. And so this is the future doom for the serpent. You are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. Now, a lot of focus is put on the the serpent, him crawling, is it a snake? There's all these questions, does he take his legs away? I don't know, that's not the point of what God's saying. Here's the point. He's saying that eating dust will now be the new existence for the serpent. Why is that important? Because eating dust is humiliating. His new existence will be humiliation. This is his consequence. And look at verse 15. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. For the first time, we now see that there are going to be two families, two races in God's world. The seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. There will be a cosmic battle of good and evil. Satan will have a people and God will have a people. But the serpent will not win in the end. He will be defeated by God, and he lays out doom for the serpent and his kind. Humiliation will turn to destruction. Now God turns to Eve. Although she's not directly cursed, she will suffer under that curse. Look at verse 16. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains, and when you will bear children, it will be painful through effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. The consequence for Eve and the punishment Eve receives is related to what she was called to do. Right, Sin will endanger God's world in such a way that childbearing is now difficult. It's now painful. It will be a reminder associated with the consequences of sin. And this pain is not just physical either. This pain is emotional. It's so much so that we'll see soon that sin so impacts God's world that women will be barren and children will die. That's the consequences of sin. And it not only impacts childbearing, it impacts the relationship between men and women. Right, there's some disagreement on what desire actually means. Does E desire her to, to rule over her husband? Or does she desire a relationship with a man? It could be either, but the point here is that the relationship, the unity in marriage, has now been fractured. The unity of marriage is now corrupted. And so we see here that not only are things cursed, not only are people impacted by that curse, relationships are broken. And he continues to Adam, look at verse 17, and he said to the man, because you have listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor. That's the same word that he uses for for the pain for Eve. He says, all the days of your life, It will will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. Adam is judged by God in a way that is equal to his sin. Adam listened to his wife. He didn't listen to God's word and therefore Adam does not obey God's command. And this disobedience is, It brings the new reality of harsh and painful labor. The ground is cursed because of Adam's sin. And what he was called to do, to work and keep the garden, it is now painful. And sin will impact every part of God's good creation. The rest of Genesis is a picture of how sin begins to malform and begins to distort and begins to destroy God's good world both in relationships and in the world itself. You see how devastating sin actually is. In the Old Testament, there's upwards of 50 words used to describe sin. 50. That's how pervasive and how powerful sin actually is. So look look down. Look back at verse 19. Their vision for being like God really turned out well for them, didn't it? They will not be like God in the way that they will not live forever. And so God says, you will return to dust. You will die. There are consequences for our sin. So church rebellious sin leads to conflict with God, and there are consequences to our sin. But there is hope, which brings us to our third principle. Sin does not change the character of God. Sin does not change the character of God. The question still remains can we trust God? Is He for us? First, I want you to pause for just a second and look back over what we just read. Adam and Eve, well, when we get to verse 15, right, he says, Your offspring, there should be no offspring. Adam and Eve should be dead. And God's gracious mercy, they are still alive. And I've, of course, I understand their spiritual death, but they should have been dead, they should have been destroyed. Sin deserves consequences and God must punish sin, but he's doing so in a way that he also is gracious and shows us who he really is. Look at Adam's response to God in verse 20. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Adam demonstrates faith in God. He heard the promise of victory in verse 15. He trusts God that will That God will continue life, even in a distorted, broken, sinful world. He trusts God to to bring the destruction of the serpent, and while doing so, holding back the curse of death, so much so that they will still be able to have children. That they will be able to accomplish the, the mandate that God will keep His promises. Church, living in light of God's promises in God's world is an act of faith. Do we trust his promises or do we forget them? Or do we push them aside? Now look look at how God responds. Look at verse 21. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife and he clothed them. Where do these skins come from? They come from an animal. And so God has to kill something that he made to cover Adam and Eve. This was a divine improvement, of course but it was also a chance for God to show Adam and Eve just how serious sin actually is. To Adam, sin was cheap. I can just cover it up with some leaves, some inanimate objects. It's not that bad. But to God, sin angers and hurts him. It's so serious that God had to kill one of his own animals to cover Adam's nakedness. Adam had to learn that sin could not be covered with leaves. But it had to be covered with pain and suffering and blood. One writer said it this way, Suffering must ever follow wrongdoing. Sin is real and it's deep and there is no cheap process for restoring God's world. None. And here's the truth, church. We cannot rise above our own sin. We cannot get out of our own consequences. We cannot make ourselves better. There is no way to do more or to be better. We cannot pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's not possible. God has to intervene in the world for that to take place. So God makes clothes for them. But look at verse 22. Then God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life and eat forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground which he has, was taken from. And he drove the man out of the, of the owl and stationed the cherubim and the, uh, the flaming whirling sword east of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. So God banishes them from the garden. He places an angel there with a sword. So the consequence for Adam and Eve's sin is not only that, that they now are They experienced the curse, but they're now banished from God's presence. They're banished from God's garden, from His temple. They no longer can enjoy His presence. They no longer enjoy the gift of the garden. They have now experienced the true outcome of their sin. And God is righteous and just to remove them from the garden. And often the emphasis is on God's judgment to banish Adam and Eve. And this is absolutely true, but what is missed is God's grace. God's grace. We see God's grace through His judgment and His justice. Why might this be grace? Think about it. God understands that the tree of life is there in the middle of that garden. And if they eat that, they're going to live forever. I mean, we might say, well, that's not so bad. No, it's horrible. Because if Adam and Eve were to eat that, they would to be constantly underneath their sin, constantly separated from God, constantly broken forever. It isn't that God didn't want them to be like Him. He already made them in His likeness. God did not want humanity to to continue in its sinful and cursed state. They would eternally be separated from Him. Let me be very clear. God is a source of life. This tree is a physical and spiritual representation of that life. If they ate it, they could have life, but that life comes from God. And so being kicked out of the garden means that humanity's communion with him has now been severed. It's been restricted. And as we watch through the book of Genesis, what's going to happen is the people of God get more and more and further and further away from God's presence. So much so that they end up in Egypt. Sin will remove God's people from where they're supposed to be. And just think about God and his character and what he's done for Adam and Eve. They deserve death. Yet he was gracious enough to, to let them live and to put a plan in place that sin and death would be destroyed. Even from the end of chapter 3, we see that God can be trusted. He is for his people. Now I want you to look back at verse 15 for just a moment. In some ways, it seems that God is hiding something very small but very important in this verse. Look back at verse 15. He speaks to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Theologians call this the first gospel, the first good news, the proto-evangelion. It's the first time that good news has ever been talked about in this way. The hostility between Eve and the serpent is a cosmic battle of good and evil. And as I told you, Genesis will lay out that battle between God's people and Satan's people. But it doesn't end in Genesis. It's the story of the whole Bible. That God is going to work through his people and he's going to restore God's creation and bring it back to himself. God does this through an offspring, through a seed, through a son who we're going to be looking for throughout the book of Genesis. The church, that true son, is Jesus, the Messiah. The son born to Eve by the Holy Spirit This true son is is not born of Adam. He does not have the curse of sin in him. He's able to be perfect and righteous. And he's tempted not in a garden, but in a desert. For 40 days, with no food or water, and rebuffs Satan in his temptation. He's perfect. Jesus is the son of God, but Luke tells us in that temptation, he's also the son of Adam. He's the better Adam, as we sang this morning. And even before his crucifixion, he is tempted in a garden. He's tempted to not trust God's plan. He's tempted to turn away. But he follows through with God's will. And last week, you took the Lord's Supper together. I don't know if it's a coincidence or if it's just a beautiful thing that God does, but what, what, what does Genesis 3 say? Eve took And she ate. What does Jesus tell us to do in the Lord's Supper? Take and eat. My body given for you. Jesus reverses the curse. He he takes on flesh, he takes on humanity so that he can redeem all of it. God in Christ demonstrates once again that he is righteous and he's merciful. You see, at the cross, judgment and grace fully meet. That Jesus takes on the wrath of God, but it is God in our place who now dies the death that we deserve. And Jesus is vindicated because our Lord did not stay dead. But he was raised three days later. We find true and the final provision for salvation in, in God's gospel. Yes, Adam and Eve, they they received provision. They received clothes from God. Their sin was covered. But our sin was covered by a suffering Savior. He submitted his life to the cross. He was buried. He was raised. And now he's been ascended to the Father. And he reigns forever. The blood of that animal covered Adam and Eve, but it only covers one sin. The blood of our Savior covers us fully and makes us whiter than snow. So can you trust yourself? No. You are more sinful. We are more sinful than we could ever imagine. But can we trust God? Yes. Because He is more compassionate and more gracious than you've ever imagined. Pray with me. God, I ask that we would trust you. I ask that as we continue to battle sin, that we would trust your promises, that we would trust in Christ, not to receive salvation, but to ex- but to actually display our salvation by trusting your word. God, would you help us be a church that confronts sin? Would you help us be a church that helps one another fight sin, that we, we're both We call it out, but we're also gracious and kind to one another. And may we invite people who are sinful and sinners and who are far from you into your family in Christ. God, we love you. We may ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.